are you here today? Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights, and especially the women. <laughs> how, how will this affect you and your job? Darling, I don't have a job. I'm on welfare. I have no intentions of getting a job as long as this country discriminates against homosexuals. There's only homosexuals, bisexuals, and trisexuals, darling. And there's no straight people. Hello and welcome to Daring Dissent, where we uplift stories of remarkable resistance throughout history. I am your host, historian and teacher, Jeff DeMoss. Happy Pride Month! This is our second episode celebrating the lives of LGBTQ rights pioneers. Today's episode focuses on gay and trans rights activist Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha was a black, gay, trans woman who spent most of her life homeless. Despite the extreme difficulties of her life, she brought an incredible amount of joy into this world and maintained a generosity of spirit that was infectious. A little disclaimer for the episode, you're going to hear some offensive language including homophobic slurs, so this is definitely not an episode for kids. In the opener, you heard Marsha being interviewed at a 1973 gay rights protest. She fought for her rights at the Stonewall Uprising and was one of the first trans rights activists in the United States. Let's do it. Marsha was born Malcolm Michaels Jr. in Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1945, born into this working-class family with six other kids. Dad worked on an assembly line at GM, and her mom was a housekeeper. From a pretty young age, Malcolm felt most comfortable and enjoyed wearing girls' clothes. I need to give a quick note on the pronouns that I'm going to use throughout this episode, because this can get really confusing unless I kind of explain my methodology here. So, Marsha went by she, her pronouns throughout nearly all of her adult life. Not at this young stage as as Malcolm, but part of what makes things complicated is that transgender was not a commonly used term at the time, but historians and former friends identify her as a trans woman today. And this is kind of like a tricky avenue for historians to explore. Should we use the titles people use for themselves at the time, or use more modern specific terms that may better encapsulate our modern perceptions of their own identities there's also not like a you know a a specific point in time where we can point to Marsha, you know definitely 100 of the time uh, uh identifying as a woman or a man it's more complicated than that and so i'm gonna use she her pronouns maybe they them pronouns just to try to uh encapsulate the most commonly used pronouns that Marsha used for herself throughout her life And Marsha identified herself as gay, a transvestite, and a drag queen. Those were the terms that she used. And I'm going to call her Marsha by her first name because that's that's just how everyone knew her. All right, back to the story of the 16-year-old Marsha, then known as Malcolm. Malcolm's going to be attending the Mount Taman African Methodist Episcopal Church as a kid and practices their Christian faith throughout their life. Later on, Marsha's going to say that she married God in church when she was 16, and she'll never marry another man because he's the only one that she can trust. She said, he listens to all my problems, never laughs at me, he takes me very seriously. It's unclear exactly when, but Marsha's going to say later on in life that at this stage of her teenage years, she's going to be sexually assaulted by a young boy. And it's going to lead to her stopping wearing girls' clothes for quite some time. And this is indicative of a life that Marsha's going to lead that's going to be filled with a lot of hardship. Marsha is going to graduate from high school and maybe spends a brief stint in the Navy. Uh, Evidence I could find of that is really limited. But she's going to move to New York City with $15 and a bag of clothes. She's going to, at this time, initially alternate between going by Malcolm or a persona that she created, Black Marsha, and eventually she's going to start dressing almost exclusively in women's clothing. And this is when she adopts the Marsha P. Johnson name. And anytime someone asked her, she said the P stood for pay it no mind. And this is just kind of what she would say when people asked about her gender or had questions that she didn't really feel like answering. And it became this motto for her, pay it no mind. And she said that she got the Johnson from the Howard Johnson's restaurant. It's going to be really hard for Marsha to find work in NYC. So in her words, she hustles. 
She's going to make some money with odd jobs waitressing or performing in drag shows, but her main income throughout most of her life comes from being a sex worker, usually around Times Square. Here's Marsha. That's when I started my little writing. I wanted to get into this fabulous little dress, and this fabulous little hairdo here, and, and learn how to do makeup and come out. Because I found out that my body was worth the money in those days. I found out if you're a pretty boy or a pretty little transvestite, you can make a couple little dollars, and that's when I learned how to hustle. So if you're confused about the use of the word transvestite, which is not a appropriate term to use in the present day, Marsha's using that term and everybody's using that term typically to refer to men who are cross-dressing as women, but it's not necessarily a reflection of someone's gender identity automatically. And so this sex work that Marsha is engaging in is super dangerous. She faces violence, harassment. She's going to get shot once by a cab driver. She, she has a bullet lodged in her back for years, but she never really complains about it, apparently. And she's going to be arrested more than 100 times in her life. Marsha described how the system operated for sex workers at the time. Cops would take you in, regardless of whether you were actually committing a crime on that day. And so they're constantly getting picked up off the streets. Then they would offer you a plea deal. Bail would be set super high, so they knew you had no chance of getting out or affording a lawyer. And then what most would do is just plead guilty, take their 20 days instead of years, and then repeat the cycle all over again. And that's how you wind up with over 100 arrests and a super long rap sheet. And Marsha definitely is struggling. She's going to spend most of her life homeless, sleeping on friends' couches, at restaurants, movie theaters, anywhere she could find. Here's her future roommate and gay rights pioneer Randy Wicker, who we're going to hear from a few times in this episode. He's talking about Marsha's generous spirit. And I'll never forget, crazy things happened with Marsha. I remember once we were cooking the Thanksgiving dinner. And Willie said, oh, we don't want to sit here and just have this turkey. Let's take this turkey up to the Gaiety Theater and share it with everybody just at the theater. It's a strip theater. You know, the boys dancing are mainly prostitutes. So we packed up, we put it all in my truck, we ran up to the Gaiety Theater, we took it in, we, of course we made sure we were first in line, but we shared our Thanksgiving dinner with, with all these poor lost souls who had nowhere else to go on Thanksgiving but sitting in a strip house. And, and things like that were so magical in the way I gave her once a big brooch. Oh, it was missing two stones, it would have been a $50 brooch, it was a deco beautiful brooch. She went down to Christopher Street, walked a block, and some little queen said, Oh, Marsha, that brooch is so beautiful. And Marsha said, oh, you think you like it? She would give it away. Once I bought her a rabbit coat, beautiful rabbit coat for $20. I mean, it was really fine. And, and she walked down Christopher Street, some queen liked it, and she gave it away. And what everybody said about Marsha, it was a common observation about people that knew her. They said, you know, I don't know anybody in the world who has less than Marsha P. Johnson, and yet I don't know anybody in the world who's as happy as Marsha P. Johnson. A big reason why I chose Marsha for this episode and became really fascinated with her life story is just to see someone struggle the way that she did and still maintain this amazing level of compassion for others and care about everyone around her is just something really inspiring. So when Marsha is 17 years old, she's going to meet an 11-year-old Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia Rivera is this Puerto Rican trans woman also living in NYC, and they become quick friends, and Marsha helps mentor the younger Sylvia. Spoiler alert, Sylvia and Marsha become the most famous trans rights activists in American history. Hey, before we go any further here, you need to Google Marsha P. Johnson. You need to have a proper image in your mind of her iconic style. So much of the way that she carried herself reflects her personality, reflects just so much about her, and I need you to have a, a good image in your head. Marsha's style is iconic. Most of her wardrobe is going to be donations from friends, stuff she found on the streets, thrift store gems. She often hits the town with an elaborate crown of flowers on her head. And, you know, a typical outfit would be like bright red heels, stacked costume jewelry, colorful wigs, sometimes a full-on like Carmen Miranda fruit hat, uh, and a sequin dress on her tall, slim body. 
Here's Marsha in the documentary, Pay It No Mind, The Life and Times of Marsha P. Johnson, describing her style. I've never, ever done drag, seriously. I always just do drag. I never do it seriously. Because I don't have the money to do serious drag. Years ago, I used to have to get some of my stuff and it out of the trash can and bring it home and wash it. I've never been a extravagant type drag queen that can go out to every fancy store in town and buy expensive dress. I've always had to get my dresses donated or I have to get them at a thrift shop or something like that. As I talked about in the Frank Kameny episode, the 50s and 60s was a time of rampant homophobia and transphobia as the U.S. was on this crusade to prove their moral supremacy in contrast to the atheist backward Soviet Union. While certainly there was tons of homophobic harassment from the police, trans and cross-dressing people faced a special level of attacks from law enforcement. And Marsha is black, gay, poor, and gender nonconforming, so she faces this quadruple threat of potential police and societal harassment. I mean, this is a time when dancing with people of the same sex was outlawed, bars couldn't serve queer people, and cross-dressing was outlawed in dozens of cities across the country. If we take a deeper look at what the cross-dressing laws look like across the U.S., a lot of these are going to be passed to theoretically combat prostitution as sex work was associated in the public and police's mind with cross-dressing, which is certainly an unfair assumption, which led to this problematic linkage that anytime someone cross-dressed, they were a sex worker, which is obviously false. And it, listen, it's not really about the clothing. It's a morality code to try to crack down on perceptions of sexual promiscuity and indecency. The NYPD and a bunch of other police forces had a rule that you needed to have at least three articles of clothing on that matched their perception of your gender. And apparently socks didn't count. It's you know unclear to historians whether this three-article rule was an actual code followed by the NYPD or just a warning from people within the LGBT community to others to help keep them safe. A lot of the time, explicit laws didn't even exist against cross-dressing. New York actually had a law from 1845 that made it a crime to have your face painted, discolored, covered, or concealed, or be otherwise disguised while in a road or public highway. The law was actually made to combat rural farmers who kept dressing like Native Americans to evade tax collectors. So in a lot of places across the country, they would use these, quote, masquerading laws, as they were called, to combat a new focus on gender nonconformity in the 50s and 60s. And these laws uh, are going to be on the books for a long time. These masquerading laws were actually used in 2011 to arrest Occupy Wall Street protesters who were wearing masks. And, you know, typically what would happen is cross-dressing or trans people would get arrested and the most common charges that wound up in the books were indecent exposure or sexual deviancy. And historian Christopher Mitchell says that this rule was really just an excuse for cops to sexually harass and assault trans and cross-dressing people by checking their underwear is what they would do, this kind of three-article rule and all these really convoluted codes that they made up are obviously designed to, under any circumstances, whenever cops want, allow for them to harass these individuals. I mean, heck, LGBT Rights Hub San Francisco had their anti-cross-dressing ban in effect until 1974. On the night of Friday, June 27, 1969, a 23-year-old Marsha was at a party in uptown New York City. By the time she got downtown at 2 a.m., a little thing called the Stonewall Riots was already in full swing. As she described it, the place was already on fire. While part of the mythos is that Marsha threw the first brick at Stonewall, no, no she didn't, but she's going to be there almost right away and be part of days of protests and riots and help demonstrate that drag queens and trans people are going to be right at the core of one of, if not the most important moment in early LGBT rights history. Marsha said that she was actually at Stonewall the night before, and they got raided and searched by police. Here's Marsha describing the Stonewall scene. Well, uh... At first, it was just a gay men's bar. Mm -hmm. 
and they didn't allow no uh, women in. And then they start allowing women in, and then they let the drag queens in. I was one of the first drag queens to go to that place. Because <laughs> we were when we first heard about this, and then they had these drag queens working there. They didn't never arrest anybody at the Stonewall. All they did was line us up and tell us to get out. Were you one of those but, that got in the chorus lines and kicked their heels up at the police? Like, like uh, Ziegfeld Folly Girls or Rockettes? Oh, no. No, we were too busy throwing over cars and screaming in the middle of the street because we were so upset because they closed that place. Now, I know this is the most famous story in all of queer history, but it's an important one and a good one, so I got to tell it to you. The Stonewall Inn was a hole in the wall. There was no running water. There was no sewage system. It, it, it was a bar. There was no running water. They had a bucket behind the bar that they would take every glass in and they would just dunk it in, wipe it off real quick, and give it to the next customer. So despite being gross, everybody said that it was really fun. It became this gay bar that largely served gay men, but eventually would have cross-dressers and trans people and some lesbians come and everybody described it as really fun it was one of the few queer bars that allowed dancing and the jukebox was always running there and so the stonewall was this really popular haven in greenwich village for the lgbt community that surrounded it stonewall was run by the mafia not that the mafia was huge advocates of gay rights. That's not what's going on here. Instead, the mafia were one of the very few who were willing to put up with the complicated nature of constantly having your bar get raided. And what they would do is they were overcharged patrons for drinks because they knew they couldn't go get drinks in other places. And sometimes the mafia would do things like blackmail patrons with evidence that they were going to use to get them fired from their jobs. And, you know, the mafia is going to be into really sketchy stuff. They're going to be paying off the NYPD $10,000 a month, apparently, which is, my brain can't comprehend how a hole-in-the-wall bar can afford that, but I guess if you're the mafia, you probably got other things going on. And despite this payoff, we're still going to see the bar pretty frequently get raided. Cops frequently targeted gay and trans people at these bars because they perceived them as soft and unlikely to put up a fight against their constant harassment. And obviously they were targeting them because of personal and institutional homophobia and transphobia. And at the Stonewall, they had the courtesy of, anytime they got raided, having a red siren go off on the dance floor. They would stop the music. Everybody would line up along the bar and this very dehumanizing but really typical song and dance routine metaphorically would go on and you would see the cops come in and typically target cross-dressing and trans people first and ask for IDs to then you know use their ID that is going to have their gender on there at least the gender that the state says is their gender and then use that to take them away. Typically, cops had the common sense to raid these bars earlier in the night so they didn't have to deal with belligerent drunk patients. But on the night of June 27th, 1969, as it's entering into June 28th, at 1.20 a.m., eight police officers show up to raid the Stonewall Inn. When cops first start lining people up and taking them outside, something really different happens in the Stonewall raid compared to the typical raids before it. What happens is that people don't leave. Normally people would scatter and go on to the next bar or just wait a while and then come back on in, but because the cops showed up at 1.20 a.m., people were real drunk and they'd been having a good time and they didn't want to stop the party. And maybe they were worried about their friends that were still inside. And so as people were getting ushered out one by one by the cops, some getting put in a paddy wagon, some not, a crowd starts to gather. It's maybe, my understanding is maybe like 100 people inside the bar. And before the night is over, it's going to be a 1,000. When the crowd gathers outside, the mood is not immediately furious. Obviously, there are people that are angry for this very dehumanizing series of arrests and harassment solely for being gay, cross-dressing, or trans. But there are some pretty awesome stories of people, you know, having some fun with this at first, really in a mocking way towards the police, but no one is rioting, uh, you know, immediately here. 
Instead, what happens is, is a lot of the first people that get pulled out, they're going out into like a crowd of people who are now watching them get arrested by the police. And so there's stories of people voguing when uh, the cops are taking them out. And so it's like they're going to strike a pose and people are taking pretend pictures as they're coming out. Later on in the night, there's going to be people that are going to do a kick line that you heard Randy Wicker asking Marsha about earlier. And there's this very famous question in the history of Stonewall of who threw the first brick. It's a problematic question because A, it almost certainly wasn't a brick. And B, it doesn't matter who the individual was that threw the first item at the cops. This was a collective community effort. And all these different stories that try to say, oh, it was Marsha P. Johnson, it was Sylvia Rivera who's also going to be there, or there's a lot of other people who are going to get credit for it. It kind of misses the importance of this being a community effort that is going to be drag queens, uh, gay men, lesbian women, people that are trans that are going to come together in this fight, in this show of spontaneous fury with the police. But somebody throws some change at the police. Apparently what shifted the mood was that one of the bartenders got arrested and this really pissed off the crowd as they just couldn't understand why the bartender was getting arrested. Someone, it seems, throws some change, then some glasses are thrown, and all of a sudden we've got a full-blown riot. You've got a thousand people that are going to be out in the streets as people from nearby bars had gathered, apparently there's a women's prison directly across the street who are cheering on uh, as this is happening. It's just, is it this wild, riotous scene that is going to break out, and it's a thousand people against eight cops. And so the cops retreat into the bar and barricade themselves inside. My favorite detail from Stonewall is that some of the rioters get their hands on a parking meter and try to use it as a battering ram to try to break down the door. I like to imagine that gay power overcame them and they just hulked the parking meter out of the ground with their bare hands. It was probably already on the ground, but I like my version of the story better. And hey, these rioters um, set the bar on fire. So things are a riot. Like I'm, I'm going to be okay with using that term because that's definitely what's going on. That doesn't mean that I can't justify the anger. That doesn't mean that I can't celebrate this as an incredibly important moment. Our language choice matters, and I'm happy to call it an uprising as well, but the words uprising and rebellion have some pretty specific connotations in history, and we can celebrate this as this pivotal moment that's going to be a watershed moment in the gay and trans rights movement history and still be able to recognize that the actual act is a riot a really freaking important one so the cops are actually able to make it out safe by the time we reach the early morning hours you know a big reason that stonewall is going to be so significant is because the gay rights infrastructure already existed from decades of previous work in order to capitalize on this moment and help spread the word so a bunch of these rioters go out in the early morning hours and they, you know, I, I've read of people writing in chalk on any brick that they could find all across Greenwich Village that, you know, meet up tomorrow night, Stonewall. And the protests continue for days. Some of the pamphlets in the coming days said, do you think the homosexuals are revolting? You bet your sweet ass we are. So the night after the initial riot, there's going to be more. And Marsha is going to climb a lamppost in high heels in this tight dress, and she's going to drop a bag of bricks on a cop car below, shattering the windshield. So she's in the thick of things. She's not holding the picket sign outside the White House. She's smashing cops' windshields. She was asked in a later interview, were you afraid of being arrested? And Marsha said, oh no, because I've been going to jail for like 10 years before Stonewall. The chants in the streets are, we want freedom now. Christopher Street belongs to the Queens. Liberate the streets. This is this spontaneous moment that had been brewing for decades at this point. It's not that it was this singular act of harassment that 
caused this to happen. It was that this powder keg had been being filled with gunpowder for way longer than just this one night. And so on the second night of rioting, cops arrive and garbage, bricks, fists are all going to be hurled at cop cars from the protesters. And we're talking about 2,000 people in the streets. This ain't, you know, a 1950s Mattachine Society protest of a dozen people. This is 2,000 angry queer people that are trying to stand up for themselves. And so backup gets called and riot cops show up. The protesters are pushed back, but some are going to circle around the block and show up behind the cops. They're going to be jeeringly, you know, mocking the cops. There's more rocket-style kick lines that break out. They're going to call the cops Alice Blue Gowns. The chant at the kick line is, We are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair in curls. And this is the part of the Stonewall story that doesn't get told. Like, it's nights of riots. And the protests continue. It's not just that Stonewall happens and then a year later Pride happens. Like, it's days. The momentum is palatable immediately. A protester on that second night by the name of Jean DeVente was taken down by a cop and being kicked in the face. Marsha took off her blouse to help sop up the blood. And Jean tells the story of Marsha looking right at her and saying, Get up, girl. We got a fight on our hands. This riot goes on until 5.30 a.m. when the cops declare the area secure. The riots are going to fizzle out by Sunday night, which is going to be largely marked with a celebratory, victorious mood from the revelers that did show up. And outside of New York, not many Americans knew immediately about what happened at Stonewall. It was largely ignored. It's on the back pages in most mainstream newspapers or, you know, here's one headline the next day. Homo nest raided, queen bees are stinging mad. Yikes. So what what is significant about Stonewall? Well, it, it represents a line in the sand drawn by gay, trans, and cross-dressing New Yorkers. We will not take your abuse any longer. And it's a giant middle finger to cops who thought they could get by treating these people as easy targets. Well, they certainly weren't. And the rioters won that battle for sure. Marsha, Sylvia, and other trans riders also helped demonstrate that the early gay liberation movement is not just being led by middle-class white gay men. And there was indeed an immediate noted decrease in cross-dressing arrests in New York City after Stonewall, so it's not just this symbolic importance. Alright, after a quick break, we're going to examine how Stonewall helped lead Marsha down a lifetime path of advocacy. Stonewall pumped all this energy into both the gay and trans rights movements. It's 2 p.m. on June 28, 1970, exactly one year after the Stonewall uprising. Everybody's getting ready to march. The planning committee leads the charge with a banner that reads, Christopher Street Gay Liberation Day 1970. They got a big American flag. The Gay Activist Alliance with Randy Wicker march behind them. Then there's the Gay Liberation Front and the Street Queens. Marsha is wearing white bell-bottoms. Then there's the Mattachine Society of Washington, led by Frank Kameny, carrying his Gay is Good sign. And the chant is, Say it loud, Gay is proud. This is the first ever Pride Parade. And it's done not just in commemoration of Stonewall, but it's meant to be this bringing together of all these different parts of the movement that have already been fighting for decades for gay and trans rights. You can feel a new energy that is going to invigorate both of those movements. Some of the signs that you'll see in images of the crowd from that day are Gay Yale, Closet queens and backroom butches, fearful femmes and frightened friends, come out. I am lesbian and I am beautiful. Lavender menace. And my favorite, hi mom. So although the first pride parade represented this beautiful coming together of different parts of the movement, it's it's really not going to be that harmonious consistently from this point going forward. The gay rights movement, the gay liberation movement, is largely centered on voices of gay white men and lesbians. Trans voices are constantly excluded. A lot of gay people are afraid that bringing trans or cross-dressing people into the movement was going to make it harder for them to gain acceptance for the movement as a whole in really problematic exclusionary ways, right? So 
all of the gay activist alliance really refuse to fight for trans people. Like there's a few that seem to embrace them, but it's really hard to find those allies from within the movement. And they're facing open transphobia from within the gay liberation movement. Sylvia and Marsha would get called all the time to come be foot soldiers at these radical demonstrations, but once the cameras showed up, they'd be ushered behind the scenes because they didn't have the look or tone that mainstream gay liberation movement was looking for. Here's Marsha describing it. We still feel oppression by other gay brothers. Gay sisters don't think too bad at transvestites. Gay brothers do. I went to a dance at Gay Activist Alliance last week, and there was not even one gay brother that came over and said hello. They'd say hello, but they'd get away very quick. The only transvestites they were very friendly with were the ones that looked freaky in drag, like freak drag with no tits, no nothing. Well, I can't help but have tits. They're mine. And those men weren't too friendly at all. Once in a while, I get an invitation to Daughters of Belitis, this really famous lesbian group that we talked about in our last episode. And when I go there, they're always warm. All the gay sisters come over and say, hello, we're glad to see you. And they start long conversations, but not the gay brothers. They're not too friendly at all towards transvestites. As I have recently become obsessed with studying social movements of the 60s and 70s, it's not surprising that you're going to see within movements divisions. It's a natural part of what happens in social activist movements. And so, you know, they're going to face attacks by gay rights groups like the Radical Lesbians and Lesbian Liberation Committee. And, you know, feminist culture in the 60s and 70s was trying to fight against the beauty expectations placed on women. High heels, tight dresses, perfect makeup. And what some of these lesbian groups tried to say was that trans and cross-dressing women flaunted the worst stereotypes of women with their over-the-top girliness. And they tried to say that cross-dressing was sexist. As one lesbian put it, a man can take off his oppression as he pulls off his false eyelashes and his wig and his dress, but we wear it all of our lives. There tended to be greater acceptance from women for, quote, political drag. Gay men glamming it up in a deliberately offensive challenge to traditional ideas of femininity, but males who were attempting to, quote, pass as female received significant pushback from feminist circles. And, you know, this is a reminder that our understanding of trans identity is in its infancy at this time, and there seemed to be a cultural focus on assuming that any crossdresser was a gay man, when in reality, many crossdressers were married heterosexual men. So, you know, I'm trying to do my best to try to unpack all the complexity of what's happening within this movement as a straight cisgender man. But uh, I think what's important for us to take away is that trans people are not going to be embraced from without the movement. And then from within, there's very few allies that they can find that are going to consistently defend them. Let's jump forward three years. It's Pride 1973. There's now 20,000 people gathered in Washington Square Park for this growing pride parade movement. Sylvia Rivera, at this point in her life, has become an activist along with Marsha. And Sylvia is high on speed and booze, and she hops up largely uninvited on stage to give the following address to the crowd. Getting our rights 
whilst I will not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. So you can hear a pretty divided crowd not sure how to respond to Sylvia who's calling them out pretty hard. While we're focusing on Marsha in this episode, the relationship between Marsha and Sylvia is that they're they're really close friends, they're going to be working together, and they're going to bring together a lot of attention to how trans voices and cross-dressing voices are being left out of the movement when... Sylvia does it. She's largely going to be using that style and that tone of of being in your face and super direct. And Marsha's going to be more the um, certainly outspoken activist, but do it in a style that is, let's say, less abrasive than Sylvia's. I love Sylvia's abrasiveness in this context. I think it's amazing, but Marsha just has a very different tone and character to her for sure. And they complement each other really well. Marsha's at all these earliest pride parades as well, and once things calm down after Sylvia's speech, there are some musical performances, including a song titled Since I Met You, I Dropped Out of the Movement by Lucy Wilde, and it has the following lines, and Sunday morning, Marsha said that Sylvie's in jail. Nobody put up the bail. Somebody censors her mail. And if we don't start marching on Christopher soon, we'll dig our own tomb. You'll see. All right, let's dive into Marsha and Sylvia's work together. Let's go back to September of 1970. Marsha's 25, Sylvia's 19, and NYU is going to cancel a gay dance until they can consult with ministers and psychologists to determine whether homosexuality was morally acceptable. There had actually been multiple of these dances beforehand, and they decided to try to cancel like the fourth one. So queer activists, including Marsha and Sylvia, occupy Weinstein Hall for five days. It's a pretty awesome sit-in. Uh, there are showers, there are amenities, there are teach-ins. It's, it's kind of in a dorm room. And it was largely like a freshman-sophomore dorm they were occupying, and apparently it was a huge hit with the largely brand-new-to-college students in September of their first year of college who were excited that this was what college was like. There's all these stories of people calling home and be like, Hey, Mom, there's a bunch of drag queens down on the first floor. College is crazy. <laughs> And on the day the dance is supposed to happen, riot police storm the hall. They gave them 10 seconds to leave. Most are going to rush out, including Marsha. Sylvia stays and starts shouting, give me a G. She's dragged out, kicking and screaming. But the occupation directly inspires Sylvia and Marsha to create STAR. They're going to create this organization and originally call themselves the Street Transvestites for Gay Power. The group declared... You people run if you want to, but we're tired of running. We intend to fight for our rights until we get them. Marcia said, I think if transvestites don't stand up for themselves, nobody else is going to stand up for transvestites. If a transvestite doesn't say I'm gay and I'm proud and I'm a transvestite, then nobody else is going to hop up there and say I'm gay and I'm proud and I'm a transvestite for them because they're not transvestites. When the Gay Activist Alliance refused to give a donation for rent or clothes for homeless youth to their group, they dropped the gay power from the name and became the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. And the first STAR house was a trailer in a Greenwich Village parking lot, and it was a shelter, a social space for LGBT youth, especially homeless trans sex workers. They're giving food, shelter, clothing to people who need it, when they don't usually have those things for themselves, meaning Sylvia and Marsha and the people running the organization. One day the trailer gets towed with 20 people still sleeping inside. They jump out of the moving trailer as it's towed, so they're going to seek out a more permanent home. They find a four-bedroom apartment at East 2nd Street with no running water or electricity, and Marsha and Sylvia pay the rent with their money from sex work at night. They're going to be able to pay the rent and care for tons of people over the next eight months. And it's meant to be, you know, both a place to provide community services for LGBTQ use on the street, you know, stuff like providing a lawyer, but also to serve as a hub for organizing more fights in the queer liberation movement. Marsha said in a 1972 interview that her goal was to see gay people liberated and free and to have equal rights that other people have in America with her gay brothers and sisters out of jail and on the streets again. Star is definitely radical. They are not pulling any punches. Sylvia, who's the organization president, said, We don't believe in cooperating with the man. We're dedicated to blowing up the next building and killing the next cop. 
Vice President Marsha said, We believed in picking up the gun, starting a revolution if necessary. They, they certainly aren't doing any of those things, but Marsha and especially Sylvia certainly had a flair for radical rhetoric, as many revolutionaries and, and radical activists from the 60s and 70s did. Sylvia and Marsha become these proxy mothers for a lot of these young people struggling, living out on the streets. And Star's going to expand to a few other cities before it eventually collapses in the mid-70s. One of the queens embezzled the rent money and they got evicted. And Sylvia Rivera said that they struggled to get the organization fully functioning because they just couldn't get the support they needed financially or otherwise to make it happen. And Sylvia said the community is always embarrassed by the drag queens. But even though Star only existed for a short amount of time, this was an incredibly groundbreaking organization. It was the first LGBTU shelter in North America. It was the first organization led by a trans woman of color. And it was the first trans sex worker labor organization. And so really groundbreaking stuff from Marsha, Sylvia, and Star. Marsha becomes this minor celebrity in the 70s. She's widely loved in the Greenwich Village community. They nickname her St. Marsha or the Mayor of Christopher Street. It seems like there's a lot of gay people calling themselves the Mayor of Christopher Street at this time, but whatever. Here's Randy Wicker again. Because Marsha was universally beloved in a way that I don't think anyone I've ever known has been. A big part of her fame comes from her performances with this drag group called the Hot Peaches. Here's Marsha reading her poem titled Soul. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am saying a poem for you called Self. Soul. You can count your karma if Nirvana is your goal. You can shake and you can rattle. You can rock and roll. You can be a Clark Kent or a Lois or an Alice down the hall. You can be a vampire on a mountain with the heart of stone black coal. You can be a leather angel on a sleek black holly bike, uh-huh. or a redhead screaming faggot, or a dancing giant. You can lock yourself in a closet in a binding soul, but it really doesn't matter if you ain't got soul. Filmmaker David France said, Marsha's political tool was happiness. She used happiness as a way to organize people, a way to motivate people, a way to support people who were in terrible need of support, who were not getting it elsewhere. So despite all this happiness, she continues to live a life of exclusion. And starting in 1970, she had a series of breakdowns. She's going to be in and out of psychiatric institutions. There's some stories of some gay rights groups helping, like, break her out of Bellevue Mental Institution. Historian Martin Duberman said she would wander, start off talking about one thing, and end up miles away. People would say that drugs had ruined her mind, that she was a permanent space cadet, but he also noted that her mind had concentrated wonderfully when organizing STAR and being able to focus on her activism. The way that Marsha put it, I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong. In 1975, Andy Warhol is working on commission to produce hundreds of portraits of trans women in his unique style. He calls it his Ladies and Gentlemen series. Two of those canvases depict Marsha with this beaming smile on her face. Warhol didn't bother to name any of the women and give credit for who they were. Like, he paid them for this job, but... Part of the broader trend in American society at this time is to treat trans women as this other, and most of Andy Warhol's subjects are going to be identified by name, and none of the people in the Ladies and Gentlemen series are. Marsha actually took some of her friends to see a screen print of Warhol's depiction of her, and when they walked into the Greenwich Village shop that had it on display, they called her Riff Raff and threw her out. Marsha meets gay activist Randy Wicker in 1973. Randy is probably side-by-side side with Frank Kameny for being one of the earliest, most significant gay rights pioneers. 
And when they meet, Wicker thought at the time that trans women and drag queens were a problem for the movement. He said the drag queen is something we've been stuck with. And he later is going to recognize that he was a male chauvinist pig in his own words. They cross paths again in 1980. And Marsha is homeless again and asked to stay the night at Randy's apartment. So Marsha V. Johnson came into my house that night and lived with me for the next 12 years. And Marsha V. Johnson was the greatest, the greatest thing, the greatest gift. How many people have somebody that is so beautiful? And so pure and so real and so generous and so giving. So they develop obviously a very deep friendship and Wicker calls living with Marsha the greatest blessing of his life. It's really cool that these two pioneers lived together for such a long time. It's just quite an awesome confluence in history. I want to play for you this home video audio clip that Wicker actually uploaded to YouTube. It's just like on there from his own account. It, Wicker is still alive and still fighting for gay and trans rights. And this home video is just Wicker and Marsha chatting it up. And it just gives you an example of just the the positive, funny energy that Marsha's always bringing to the table. You should follow her in there and get her uh, as she's pulling out those treasures. That's my Christmas present I gave her. Yeah, Randy gave me all these coats to get murdered in. Oh, I'm not even going to bother to sew this sleeve off, sew it tomorrow. She can't even go out to the discos in it. They won't check it. It's so expensive. No, they won't check it. Too expensive to check? That's right. I said, Randy buys me things to get murdered in all these tons of furs. Go in the kitchen with we'll do a fashion show. No, we're wearing this hat. And Maybe I should wear blue tonight. Pistachia, huh? I guess this could do. Oh, yeah, the police stole it. They didn't just steal the coat. My sister said happy birthday. They didn't just steal the coat, Randy. They took the coat, they took the purse, they took the jewels, they took everything and didn't give me that one receipt. <laughs> so. Wicker, who lived this amazing life of advocacy in his own right, said, The real secret to my life is having a big enough apartment to make room for people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. And Marsha becomes the house mother of the extended gay family coming in and out of Wicker's place. And in 1980, she's going to be invited to ride in the lead car of New York City's Pride Parade and get some you know, deeper level of recognition from a movement that largely excluded her initially and throughout the 80s she's going to continue her advocacy for both trans and gay rights in 1992 marcia said they call me a legend in my own time because there were so many queens gone that i'm one of the few queens left from the 70s and the 80s you may be able to guess why Marsha is one of the few queens left because in the 1980s, HIV AIDS is going to ravage a lot of the gay community and be this absolutely devastating disease that the government doesn't pay any attention to and tries to label it as the gay plague. And we go far too long without dedicating the public health resources that we need to to be able to address this issue. So Marcia shifts a lot of her advocacy to fighting for greater public recognition and dedicating resources to combating the HIV AIDS crisis. She becomes this organizer and marshal for ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and she helps spread a lot of awareness and combat stigma. And on a personal level, Wicker's longtime lover, David Combs, is going to be severely ill at their apartment, and he's uh, dying of AIDS in the late 80s, and Marsha's going to be the one taking care of him and is by his side when he passes. Marsha herself is going to unfortunately contract HIV in 1990, and that's just going to have her ramp up her advocacy for this crisis. July 6, 1992, the New York Police Department pulls the dead body of Marsha P. Johnson from the Hudson River. She's 46 years old. There's no real investigation, and cops immediately rule it a suicide. 
Wicker says the police did nothing just because she was black, transgender, and a known prostitute. And he and many others believe that it was murder, and they call the police out for ruling it a suicide because there's so much violence and murder and harassment that happens for trans women, and Wicker, from living with her, didn't believe that she was suicidal. Later in 1992, the cops are going to reclassify it as a drowning from undetermined causes. And the 2017 documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, is on Netflix, and it follows a modern attempt to solve the mystery of her death, because we, we don't know. The case was formally reopened in 2012, but it remains unsolved. Sylvia Rivera keeps fighting against trans exclusion from gay rights movements until her death from liver cancer in 2002. Randy Wicker is going to turn his apartment into a Marsha P. Johnson little memorial, little shrine. He's going to call her a saint, and his walls are covered with trans flags. He can still be seen in his wheelchair marching for trans rights across New York City wearing his Marsha P. Johnson button, beautiful picture of her face. And Marsha has inspired multiple generations of activists. Susan Stryker put it this way, You might expect a person in such a position to be fragile, brutalized, beaten down. Instead, Marsha had this joie de vivre, a capacity to find joy in a world of suffering. She channeled it into political action and did it with a kind of fierceness, grace, and whimsy with a loopy, absurdist reaction to it all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope I was able to capture just a little bit of the essence and spirit of Marsha. I know I didn't get every single piece of the story, but I hope I got that little bit. I finally got my source list together for each one of my episodes. Good historians should, you know, cite their sources, and I've been uh, a lazy historian. So if you want to further explore any of the subjects on Daring Descent or just see what the research process looks like for a historical podcaster, you'll find a comprehensive source list linked in every episode note now. If you like the show, there's a link in the episode notes to give me a little tip. Please, at the very least, rate, subscribe, follow. You can follow me at Daring Descent on Instagram. And let's not forget that ultimately history is a practice in empathy. We'll give Marsha the final word here today. Marsha said, no pride for some of us without liberation for all of us.